0: Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms. But starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear Episode 1 on April 11th, and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times
1: from the la times studios this is asian enough each week on this podcast we talk to one asian american celebrity about the joys the complications and everything else that comes along with being asian american i'm jenny Mato,
2: and i'm frank Shaw. this week on episode three of our show we have the pulitzer prize winning writer viet Tan nguyen
3: so when you know jonathan franzen and Puts a description of a sandwich in his, in his novel He says, I ate a sandwich, period As a Vietnamese person, I'm expected to say I ate a bowl of pho, comma, A delicious <laughs> beef noodle Vietnamese soup <laughs> But when you say that, you know you're not talking to Vietnamese people
2: Nguyen's debut novel, The Sympathizer Was published in 2015 It's this intense, funny, cinematic spy thriller Set in the aftermath of the Vietnam War And in 2017, he wrote The Refugees A collection of stories about refugee life
1: Viet has also written nonfiction books and commentary for lots of places, including our very own L.A. Times. He is prolific. We were so excited to take a trip outside our studio to visit him across town at the University of Southern California. So let's get started.
2: I wanted to talk to you, start with first, um, what does being Vietnamese American mean to you? You know, what does being Asian American mean to you?
3: Well, being Vietnamese-American to me means being traumatized, troubled by so many different things. Of course, there's wonderful things about being Vietnamese-American. I grew up knowing that we had a very tight community, that uh, doors would always be open to you, that people would be very hospitable to you, that blood was thicker than water. And then the flip side of that is that Vietnamese-Americans also, therefore, know all the weak spots and, you know, know how to cause you pain. Um, and so that that's what it means for me to grow up, grow, growing up being Asian American, a source of both strength and pain, both culturally, because basically we were the losers of the Vietnam War. And we carried that burden with us to the United States and took it out on each other, not on other Americans, but on our own community and uh, in between generations. And given that this is an Asian enough podcast, it was certainly when I was growing up, a sense of being Vietnamese enough or not enough. And in some ways, I feel like I was... Uh, A generation ahead of my time because I was completely inauthentic at that time. Uh, My Vietnamese was fluent at a four year old level and it stayed that way. (laughs) Whereas in the 70s and 80s, most people spoke good or passable Vietnamese at the very least. And now we're looking at a generation of younger Vietnamese Americans who were born here who oftentimes can't even say their names correctly. And I have nothing, no problem with that, you know? (laughs) But it just means that, you know, definitions of what is enough, what is authentic have changed over time. And it's a losing battle, you know. Whoever stakes out their claim about being more authentic than someone else will always find that there's someone else behind them who say exactly. no exactly not, not right. We all lose. Yeah. Nobody has the analytics of Confucius memorized, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs>
1: like, but actually for the record, can you share with the world how do you say your name? And what are the different iterations that you've heard? That you would like to put out there to sort of help people learn how to say your name. Something so basic.
3: Well, you know, I, I, I recently uh, Kirk Douglas died. So it was really kind of cool reading his, his obituary and, and realizing that he was Jewish from Russia. And that he has a very Russian Jewish name, I guess, which everybody's forgotten. I can't even say it. And he lived this life of duality. So it feels to me that many of us who are Asian Americans or, or refugees or immigrants or the descendants thereof have the same issues. And, uh, we live with that duality all the time. I drew a line, though. I didn't become Kirk Douglas, but I became Viet Tan Nguyen. That's the Americanization, both in terms of the the sequence of my names, but the pronunciation. And if you wanted, you were to go hybrid, I I would do it the Vietnamese pronunciation, but the American sequence, Viet Tang Nguyen. And if I was just to go full on Vietnamese, the way they would do it in Vietnam, it would be Nguyen Tang Viet. So when my own work was translated into Vietnamese and published, I thought for sure, going back to this idea of Asian enough or Vietnamese enough, that they would see me as a Vietnamese writer and my name on my book would be Nguyen Thanh Viet. So I was really astonished to see the cover of The Refugees translated into Vietnamese and seeing my name Viet Tan Win. American sequence, no accent marks, which means finally they see me as an American. And I'm, I'm okay with that too.
4: Did you know that socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters? Well, Bombas is on a mission to change that. They created the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And for every pair of socks purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And they've donated over 20 million pairs. Designed with special comfort innovations, colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas are perfect for the whole family. Get your hands on a pair of Bombas socks and your feet will thank you. They're made from super soft natural cotton, and every pair is designed with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's supportive but not too thick. My new favorites are their new merino wool socks, designed to be breathable, dry, and never itchy, with just the right amount of thickness. I wear my merino wool socks every day, whether I'm in the office or working from home, and they always keep my feet feeling fresh and comfortable. Now, you can save 20% on your first purchase when you shop at Bombas.com slash enough. That's Bombas.com slash enough to save 20%. Bombas.com slash enough
1: So your family's story in America began when you were age 4. They came here. You you grew up in San Jose, California. Your parents opened a grocery store. Tell us about that experience. What was that like and and what was their journey like? What what brought them here? Why did they come to California?
3: My family uh, fled the the Vietnam War with 130,000 other Vietnamese refugees because we were on the losing side. And my parents in particular were were hardcore Catholics. And hardcore Catholics hate communists. (laughs) And so they, they, they fled from the communists twice in 1954 when the country was divided. They were in the north. They went to the south. And then they fled again in 1975. So they're refugees twice. And then they came. They were resettled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, For a few years. Uh, And there you have to realize my parents have been very successful in Vietnam. They'd been born as peasants, worked their way up and became wealthy and then lost a lot of that coming to the United States, arrived here as refugees. And their American sponsors expected them to be poor refugees who would be satisfied with working class or even menial jobs. And that's what they did in Harrisburg for a few years, but they obviously were not satisfied with that. I had a good friend in San Jose who said, this is a promised land, the weather is good, <laughs> there are a lot of Asians out here, and I just opened up a grocery store. So they came out and worked uh, with her mm-hmm. at probably the first Vietnamese grocery store in San Jose in 1978. And then they opened the second Vietnamese grocery store right down the street for some reason. <laughs> uh, I don't know how their friend felt about that. But, you know, we we live the classic refugee or immigrant American success story, which meant, you know, my parents climbed the ladder yet again, rebuilt their wealth. And that exacted a huge physical and emotional toll on them and an emotional toll on me. I'm thankful they didn't make me work in the store because they didn't want me to do that. They wanted my brother and I to get an education. But what I saw growing up was my parents working 12 to 14 hour days, almost every day of the year, and working in a very dangerous environment, you know, they were shot in their store. We were robbed at gunpoint at home. My parents were always very paranoid about these kinds of, of issues. And I'm saying we had this class, classic immigrant or refugee story because they spent all their time working in order to support my brother and me and, and, and give us a good life. But of course, what that meant is that they had no time to spend with us. So that's just the classic immigrant or refugee double bind And that's part of what it meant to be having this sort of lonely, traumatized childhood for me, which in the positive sense gave me the requisite emotional damage necessary to become a writer. (laughs) So I'm thankful for that.
2: Inherited trauma you mentioned earlier, and uh, it's something that's like really hard to explain to the everyday reader because it it sounds a little bit academic, you know, but like when it comes down to it, it's basically like what your parents went through and, and how it affected you. I don't know if you could kind of like talk about the the specifics of that, any sort of characteristics that your parents might have passed down.
3: Well, uh, my parents were devout Catholics and Catholics like to suffer. Um, so <laughs> in a sense, we were very well equipped to deal with being uh, refugees and immigrants because my parents suffered a lot, uh, both in terms of just having to work really, really hard. And and also, of course, they they survived 30 years of war in Vietnam from 1945 to 1975, which which killed millions of people. Um, so I have no idea what they had to go through to become the people that they are, except in a very conceptual way. That's all you know—the consequences of that, just in terms of their refugee shopkeeper lifestyle. And even though they became very successful financially, and and I'm an inheritor of that, I also grew up feeling like we were poor. <laughs> you know, my parents made a lot of money, but they were not spending it on anything. Oh you know? yeah. And uh, I I think that watching them suffer and watching them work as much as they did made me not want to do what they did. But ironically, I've turned into someone almost exactly like them mm-hmm. in the sense that I work constantly. I mean, I work a very nice job, you know, being a professor and being a writer, but I'm always working, and uh, I suffer in my own way. Not Again, not in the grinding way that, mm-hmm. that shopkeepers have to go through, but writing is kind of a, a suffering for anyone oh, yeah. who so to do it's this. it's a
1: very internal suffering. Yeah, yeah. it's a very oh, internal oh, suffering,
3: yeah. right. But, uh, you know, for any, ask any writer, they, well, you know, most writers, they're, they're tormented by, yeah. by the struggle of being a writer. And as elite of a lifestyle as that as that is, um, nevertheless, I think I've I've been equipped to to deal with that based on what I saw my parents go through and just absorbing their, their workaholic Catholic suffering lifestyle.
2: <laughs> and I think in my like own family, like the way that my mom is very sort of pathological about saving money and maximizing it, and that's because she grew up very poor. Now I find myself thirty-two you know, earning enough money to buy a pair of shoes that cost more than $20. How'd that
1: make you feel free?
2: But I can't do it. You know, I really can't, you know. And somebody told me that I had the shoes of a restaurant worker a couple of years ago. And I was like, I need to fix this, you know. And even my dad, you know, when you go back home and they do your laundry for you, he was looking at my clothes and he was like, you need newer clothes. So I'm like, why don't you buy some new things, you know. So these things all leave a mark.
1: Going off of that. What your work is and the kinds of writing that you do require so much self-knowledge as well. You grew up in the Bay Area, which is a diverse place. Yeah, you know, I also grew up in East Bay. You're South Bay. I'm East Bay. Um, but for me, being Asian American as a kid in a very diverse place was great in some ways because it's diverse. And I didn't stand out in the ways that Frank, for example, grew up in Tennessee, Tennessee. has talked about. Very different. But by the same token, (laughs) there are things that you've written about your experience growing up that I really relate to in that I was so intensely aware of the otherness that other people perceived when they looked at me. And it gave me a chip on my shoulder. I had a lot of like anger and resentment about that and it was really hard to know what to do with that for a long time so then to become a writer who writes about these things you know you're not writing like fairy tales or sci-fi movies you know your your writing is very close to these experiences and i wonder how did you process that what enabled you to get to that point and and what was your experience like growing up
3: well it's kind of interesting you know hearing about both of your life experiences because You know, I could see where, you know, Frank's experience would mean that he would obviously feel like a complete other. And yet we grew up in the multicultural Bay Area and I grew up in a Vietnamese and and Mexican neighborhood and so on. But I still felt that that sense of otherness. And I think that's because even if we did live in a multicultural environment, uh, dominant American culture is still was and probably still is dominated by white people. And so I like to say I didn't really experience that many direct episodes of racism. I've experienced a few small ones. But nevertheless, I felt like we were all irradiated by racism just by what was out there on the airwaves, you know, from TV, movies, radio, shock jocks, all this kind of stupid stuff that was going on. And so I felt that on the one hand, I was absorbing that. On the other hand, I was also receiving support from the Vietnamese Mm -hmm. uh, community and from an implicit Asian-American community. So I went to this all-white high school, mostly white high school, but there were a bunch of us who were of Asian descent. We knew we were different. We just didn't know how. So we'd gather in a corner of the campus every day for lunch and we would call ourselves the Asian invasion. You owned it. <laughs> I, you I like, owned like, it. reclaimed yeah, it. Yeah, but we didn't have the language. It was just like we knew we were Asian, but we most of those guys never became political, like I became political. So what happened? I think it was a combination of this Catholicism that I was raised with, the suffering and the sense of sacrifice, uh, willing sacrifice, like I'm gonna be a martyr. And then I went to Berkeley and I was already an atheist, so I couldn't be a Catholic martyr, but I became an Asian American martyr, you know, at Berkeley. I became immediately radicalized there. And that was partly through political activism on the campus, but also wanting to be a writer in the context of uh, the traditions of Asian American, African American literature, but also American literature. I did a PhD in American literature, and I thought, I, I'm not going to refuse being Vietnamese or Asian American, but I'm also at the same time going to claim my Americanness as well. I'm going to write stuff that goes in both directions. I did have a big chip on my shoulder, still do. I looked around, I thought, well, people just aren't angry enough. You know, I, I came out of a Berkeley tradition where anger was good. Being radical was good. And then you look out at the landscape of Vietnamese and Asian American literature sometimes and you think, well, it's, it's well written, but maybe there's not enough anger. There's not enough politics in there. There has been in the past. So I wanted to be someone who would incorporate both the politics of the Asian American tradition with what I imagine to be the highest levels of you know, aesthetics and literature. That was my ambition.
2: Going back to the home country is one of those things that makes people feel Asian enough, or not Asian enough. And also,
1: Uh. it's so anxiety-inducing sometimes. Yeah, it is.
2: It is. You've only been back once, Once. Jen's fourth generation. Yeah, I'm fourth
1: generation Japanese-American. I went back once with my grandmother and my aunt, and only one of us could speak Japanese. And Mm -hmm. I I wasn't one of them. You know, I wasn't the one. Uh, It was my grandmother. So to rely on a woman in her 80s as your guide... When you go to Japan as a twenty-something-year-old, it was very complicated um, and wonderful in ways. But you know, um,
3: but do they see do they see you as Japanese or American though?
1: Oh, what a fascinating question! Because I I walk around Tokyo and I'm I'm like, oh, they can tell, they yeah. can tell I'm not. So so that's American. my feeling, right? right. That's right. my feeling. Uh, I actually don't know. I still don't know yeah. hmm. how I would. I, I have
3: fantasies that, you know, because, for example, Korean and and, and Japanese Americans have been here a lot longer than the Vietnamese. And because Korea and Japan have more developed economies in, in Vietnam, that when Korean and Japanese Americans go back, they have a better chance of perhaps being seen as Americans because people in Korea and Japan may be more used to seeing these returnees. Mm-hmm. And that's increasingly more the case in Vietnam. But, of course, initially when I went, that, that wasn't the case. But I, I didn't go back with any anticipation that I would be fully Vietnamese going back, you know, I think I'd read enough Asian American literature to know that you go back to the origins and you realize how inauthentic you are. And I'd already seen it happening with my parents. You know, my parents wanted to go back to Vietnam for years and years. Finally, we were able to go back 20 years after the end of the war. I had grown up with them telling me we are 100% Vietnamese. They go back, they come back. And then over Thanksgiving dinner, my father says, we are americans now <laughs> you know so that that idea that there would be authenticity was not a desire for me but certainly there was a lot of trepidation because I had a lot of relatives to see i mean when you are a returnee especially of the first or second generation there's a lot of emotional consequences and if you go back to a poor country or to poor relatives like i did there's a lot of financial Oh, consequences. Yes. You know, my, my dad sent me completely prepped with a list of the relatives and the amounts of money each one was going to get and envelopes prepared for each one. so <laughs> you had a list, least, of, I had like a list. Of, yeah. Oh my God. And yeah, then wow. even still random people would show up and say, hey, I knew your, your parents way back when I gave them an envelope yeah. too. You know, so it's a very complicated thing to return to the homeland. And just the last thing I want to say is it's funny that, that Jen, you said you were going back. You're fourth generation. You're not going back. You were never there for exactly. three generations. That's,
1: exactly. Yeah. You know,
3: Italians and, and French and German people of those descents in the United States. I don't, when they go to those countries, I don't think we ever say, did you go back to Italy?
2: Yeah.
1: I was like, like, do you speak Italian? Yeah.
2: But I remember you were talking about how in uh, when you go back to you, you, you didn't go back every, every year or anything. You just been back like a few times. Right. How many times?
3: Two thousand and two was the first time I went as a tourist because I just thought, I'm, I'm just going to have fun yeah. get acclimated. So I went for two weeks as a tourist, and probably four or five times after that for about a year altogether to learn the language and yeah. do actual research for my nonfiction stuff and see you know relatives. Being Vietnamese enough, I thought I know what the real prices are in this country. I'm not paying three hundred dollars night to stay <laughs> exactly. at the Hilton. I'm paying twenty five dollars for yeah. for a room with an air conditioner. Yeah. But funnily enough, when I brought my son back. The first and only time so far for him, just for one night, so he could spend his first birthday in uh, Vietnam and see his uh, aunt on his mother's side, and she, you know, she lives on this kind of like rural area an out, hour outside of Saigon. And I knew that if, if we stayed there, he would hate Vietnam. Right? <laughs> like all the, all the all the kids on on my wife's side of the family, they go back, they, they stay in this area, and they hate it because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's hot and boring and, and all this kind of and poor. So we, for the only time in my life in Vietnam, I stayed at one of the fanciest hotels in Saigon just for his sake because when I bring my children back to Vietnam, I want them to actually like it. Yeah. Later on, they can go for the authentic stuff and see the poverty and all that other kind of thing. But knowing knowing how difficult this, this journey back is... I would like to have for my son a a return to Vietnam where he would think, oh, it's a resort. I can go hang out at the pool.
1: Well, and there's these depictions, these few depictions of Vietnam in pop culture and movies that are very, very different. And I wonder how your son's construct of what Vietnam is compares to yours, you know, going back as an adult. And then in comparison to what pop culture tells us it is. In your work, you've referenced... Apocalypse Now, Uh, we see Rambo... That character's history in Southeast Asia, even Watchmen, more recently.
3: I try not to censor myself too much in front of my son, so you know he hears very adult conversations. <laughs> and when it comes to Vietnam, he knows it's about war. <laughs> so when we talk about Vietnam, he's like, oh, was there a war? Uh, what's colonialism? <laughs> the French do like, oh, You're six years old, now. <laughs> I'd <laughs> love to fault. see him in a classroom <laughs> that's a, someday. That's what's a good colonialism? Book. That's a good
1: book. Colonialism for six-year-olds. Yeah,
3: uh, he, he he's already aware, uh, you know, at a six-year-old level of some of these complicated issues. But of course, you know, Vietnam is a lot more than that. So my hope obviously is that by the time he is old enough to go to Vietnam on his own and so on 20 years from now, that Vietnam will have changed. That Vietnam will have its own parasite, for example. I mean, Korea was had a devastating war, just as devastating as what happened to Vietnam. Korea went in a different direction for a number of reasons. And I don't think you know now with the impact of Korean pop culture and the Korean economy and so on, people have a different perception of what Korea is and Korean Americans can be proud of Korea and can do a lot of other things that have no relationship to war. And that's slightly more difficult for the Vietnamese to do because Vietnam is still uh, even more of a repressive country than Korea and, and is much poorer and, and all this kind of thing. My hope is that Vietnam, you know, will be able to shed some of its, of its complicated history, you know, which means grappling with how that history has left contemporary traces of repression uh, there in both the politics and the pop culture. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but that's my hope in the next 20 years.
2: I think it's wild how many depictions of the Vietnam War I have had consumed before, like really understanding what happened in the Vietnam War. Everything from, you know, discovering the Rambo movies were actually about the Vietnam War was painful. Oh yeah, Forrest Gump. Like I, the way I see that movie now has completely changed after, you know, kind of like understanding what happened during the war. When you first went to Vietnam, were there any kind of images that you had to try to shake off? And, and what, what sort of cultural products created those images?
3: Well, by the time I went back to Vietnam, I, I already have, I think, a pretty good sense of the, of the way that Americans had totally misrepresented the war. So I I was not concerned about that part. I think for me what I was struggling with was, was how the Vietnamese saw both the war, but also their contemporary period. So, for example, you know, in my, my book, The Refugees, only has, like I think, one story set in Vietnam. But that story, I had to wait a few years after my first visits to Vietnam because I didn't want to write that story as if I were a foreigner coming to Vietnam and, and seeing all the all the weird things. Oh, that's weird. And that's weird. And I got to put it in my story because it's weird. I wanted to see the, the, the country the way that Vietnamese people might see it so that it's normal. I would observe the things that Vietnamese people would see rather than a foreigner would see. And my specific concerns uh, as a scholar and a writer were about the Vietnam War. Like, how, how can I write about this from the perspective of Americans and Vietnamese Americans, but also the Vietnamese? So I wanted to Hear people's stories, see how from different sides, see see how they were grappling with the history, and 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 recognize that it's complicated, you know, because people I think have fairly sophisticated approaches to the memory of the war in that country, because they have their they have their own family to deal with, they have the memories that they have, but then they also know that the government wants them to remember in a certain way. Some of them accept that. Some of them reject that. I just wanted to get into those kinds of complexities and nuances. Interesting. So they know that
2: there's a message being that they, they're they supposed to receive and then there's another truth to discover beyond it. too.
3: Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, I think, you know, many of the Vietnamese that I encounter here from Vietnam are foreign students. So they're pretty intelligent and everything like that. They respond well to the sympathizer because I think they know there's a, there's a gap between the official version of history that they always got And then what the sympathizer offers them. But I think a lot of Vietnamese in Vietnam are just like the Americans here. They have one version of history. They may not think twice about it. But what they do think about it, though, I think is that it's boring. So uh, ironically, I mean, the propaganda in Vietnam is bad propaganda. You know, it's not fancy like American propaganda. It has one unintended consequence. I think it's unintended, which is that it's so boring about the past and about history and the war and revolution and all that, that the Vietnamese youth want nothing to do with it. They just want to make money. And that's perfectly acceptable to Vietnamese communism, ironically.
4: What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tacovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. If you wanna take your company from 2 million to 10 million or 10 million to hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. That means that you can run your entire business from anywhere, even if you're working from home. With NetSuite, you're covered. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 20,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Six Ways to Run a More Profitable Business, at netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. There is one question that almost everyone in America asks themselves every day. What's for dinner tonight? I used to hate meal prep, and deciding what to order was no easier. It was a constant back and forth between me and my roommate. Did we want pasta? Burgers? Should we just cook? But since I started using the meal delivery service every plate I never had to ask those questions again. Now, instead of spending so much time planning and stressing out, I cook quickly, giving me time to watch my favorite show and really catch up with my roommate after work. EveryPlate does the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you, taking the time-consuming guesswork out of cooking. And now, you can rest assured that you'll never buy more ingredients than you need, since EveryPlate's recipes come with everything already pre-measured. At first, I was skeptical about meal kits, but now I know that even at its regular price, EveryPlate is up to 58% cheaper than other major meal kits out there. Think of it this way. One meal is the same price as one cup of coffee. Plus, it's delicious. Get three weeks of EveryPlate meals for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code ASIANENOUGH3. That's Asian Enough and the number 3 at everyplate.com to get three weeks of EveryPlate meals for only $2.99.
1: So for people who don't yet know, who definitely need to get on it, how would you describe The Sympathizer?
3: The Sympathizer is a thrilling, funny, exciting novel about uh, a communist spy. It
1: is exciting. It is,
3: I think so, personally. And it's got a lot of, you know, good jokes in there as well and violence and sex and and pop music and all that. And it's about a communist spy, you know, in the South Vietnamese army. He has to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States and spy on their efforts to take their country back. And it's all true. You know, I grew up with this story, watching fundraising efforts in the Vietnamese community to support this this ragtag army in Thailand of Vietnamese former veterans who wanted to go back and invade their country. That stayed with me. And I wanted to pack everything into the sympathizer that I grew up with. So, you know, you know when you're Vietnamese, you grew up with Paris by Night, for example, our own song and dance review show, which isn't like 130 episodes now. I grew up with that. So that's in the book, you know, and the refugee struggles and and the fight against communism and intergenerational conflict and then lots of, you know, sex and all that kind of thing because I wanted to center Vietnamese experiences and all their diversity and make us the stars or the villains of our own story.
2: This is not related to something we want to talk about, but in The Sympathizer, you talk about a kanji place in Monterey Park. (laughs) Is
3: that delicious food corner? I just made that up. Oh, you know, really? But I'm glad, oh, wow. I'm glad it resonated okay, enough. Because, well. I mean, they all look the same. Yeah, a lot of it yeah. look like that. Well, Foodie
1: Frank is on the case. He's <laughs> trying to figure out. All,
3: well,
2: there's know, another thing. You said Paris by night. There's a pho restaurant in Houston called Pho Bin by Night. So and I, I've been by night. okay. Yeah. And I never understood why it's like by night, but like, I don't know, maybe if that's a reference.
3: Anyway, it must be a reference, but I'm not sure if it's by, you know, but uh, <coughs> back to the business of the <laughs> me, me, people basically like nightclubs. Okay. We just yeah. love nightclubs. Uh, that's, I grew up with that yeah. kind of thing too. We're very romantic people mm. who like to drink, smoke, dance, and just be romantic. Why that's, do you
1: think that is?
3: I mean, it's partly because we were deeply colonized by the French. So this whole cabaret kind of culture is from the French and Western pop music is from the French and we've adopted it and made it our own. But I think there must be something in Vietnamese culture as a whole that's deeply romantic, um, at least among the men. I don't know if the women feel that way. You know, that's a whole different set of issues, but the men see themselves as romantic.
1: I will say in The Sympathizer, you actually have one of your several very fascinating and complex in their own right, supporting characters is a Japanese American woman that I deeply relate to. Oh, good. I really love that character. Um, and as a person who also is not from Los Angeles but moved to Los Angeles, I love every detail of LA that is also in the book.
3: Good. Me too. Me too. Good. I finished uh, the sequel to The Sympathizer called The Committed, and it's set in Paris in the mid 1980s. And then there will be a final third part trilogy where he returns to Los Angeles. And Ms. Mori, the Japanese American character that you're talking about, will play, I think, a significant role in that. Oh Oh my! Awesome! Awesome! Looking forward to this.
1: Have there been attempts to adapt your books?
3: Well, especially the sympathizer. uh, The sympathizer, you know, has very complicated history uh, over the last few years, and. Um, You know, I've had many, many, many conversations with various kinds of actors and producers and and all of that. And I always wanted to make it into a television show uh, because it was influenced deeply by the by the new wave of now classic serial dramas like The Wire and so on that I was watching while I was writing The Sympathizer. So The Sympathizer is totally structured as if it's a TV series um, so we can reverse engineer it for TV. But when we first went out with it, I had a, a great producer whose work I really admired and who was, you know, a woman of color, Asian-American. We're on the same wavelength. And, you know, we were comparing what we wanted to do with The Sympathizer to a show that was popular at the time called Narcos, 40 or $50 million budget for a season of Narcos. So she, she went out there and then she came back after several months and she said, well, look, at this budget that we're talking about, it's about 2016, 2017, uh, people are telling me that unless we have somebody like Keanu Reeves, we're not going to get this made. Because the narrator of the sympathizer is half Vietnamese, half French. And, and at the time I thought, okay, I, I sort of get it. Hollywood is stupid. I would watch the hell out of that, <laughs> <Right>. though. <laughs> but 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 imagine Narcos has no stars. So you can you can make this drug story in Mexico with no stars, which is itself a complicated thing. Yeah. But for Asians, we still gotta get Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. to do this thing, right? Then Crazy Rich Asians happened. And my, my agent said, Hey, people are calling all, all <laughs> they're calling after Crazy Rich Asians. And I said, they realize it's not crazy rich Asians, right? I mean, Hollywood is still stupid, you know, and it's still implicitly <laughs> racist, even if it wants to not be racist. Like, we'll make more crazy rich Asian stories, even about people who are not crazy rich Asians. So I'm hoping now with Parasite's win at the Oscars, the revert, that stupid racism will still work to our favor. That people are like, oh, oh, Parasite's been a big hit. We'll make movies about everybody who's Asian. Yeah. You know, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll take it if that's the case. Mm. But, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. Um, you know, there, there's forward progress. I can't talk about it too much, but we have a director lined up who is like the dream. For me, this person came from Asia to here. We spent a whole day together talking about the book. he clearly read it, had a lot of great questions. We had meetings. We'll have meetings with prospective financiers and so on. So we just have to wait oh,
1: and see. Okay, Now I'm just racking my brain trying to guess who it is.
3: Just <laughs> <laughs> trying to break some news in this
2: podcast, you know.
1: Actually, another anecdote that is related to this that I was going to share with you is When I interviewed Constance Wu for Crazy Rich Asians for the LA Times, she quoted you to me in the interview. She quoted your concept of narrative plenitude. In the context of Crazy Rich Asians and this conversation, I think that actually is really interesting because we want more stories to show more breadth of experience and to hang all of our expectations and hopes and, and responsibility on one movie, whether that's Crazy Rich Asians or The Farewell or the upcoming The Sympathizer, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's a lot. So how does it feel to know that, like, your concepts are making it out there into the mainstream conversation?
3: Well, I read that, so thank you for including that. Oh. And you, you got to believe I tweeted the hell out of that uh, <laughs> particular quote. But I actually met Constance Wu for, like, 30 seconds at the Pasadena Playhouse, and I was just, of course, too shy to, to bring that up. You he said hi. Love your movie. You know, I didn't say that, but but no, it's good. I mean, the whole idea of narrative plenitude, of course, is that we need to have many, many, many stories about us so that one story itself is not going to make or break us we're not there yet. Because even with Parasite, people are freaking out about it. It's still the same issue. It's like we're hanging all our hopes on Parasite, both for Asian cinema and Korean cinema, but also for the ripple effects onto Asian American representation too. And it's unfortunate because obviously we're still dependent on industries and people who are not Asians or Asian Americans to make these decisions about what gets shown, what gets made and so on. And until we have the capacity to do that ourselves, we're still going to be having these these terrible conversations about uh about these these stories that bear too much of a burden so crazy rich asians has too much of a burden on it it's 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 just a romantic comedy it should be just like every other romantic comedy and we should not our expectations should be level with that and people who don't like romantic comedies shouldn't feel obligated to go see a romantic comedy
2: right and you know a lot of like pioneering asian american content like collapses under the weight of all of those expectations it is a Strange and absurd expectation that everyone of a particular race is supposed to like the movie you know, that has
3: the people of that
2: race in you don't expect like all white people to like the joker, and certainly
3: they didn't you know, but I have to say as a as a writer of the sympathizer, for example, you know which has been read by a lot of people. Whenever a Vietnamese person doesn't like it, I take it personally. <laughs> Come on,
2: what's wrong with you?
3: I did this for you. you
2: know? No, it hurts, right? Yeah. It really hurts when it's like your own people. And I, I can understand that like with crazy rich Asians, if it weren't attention completely changes the way you you, you we perceive something, the way you receive something. And that's why it's so important to talk about narrative plenitude. How do we get it? You know, like how do, how do you you know You have
1: the answers, right? You know, and, yeah, I have the answers. <laughs> I have the answers you
2: know. And and you know, you talk also the the twin of narrative plants use narrative scarcity. Narrative scarcity kind of changes which stories do get elevated and which stories don't. The publishing controversy with American dirt it being this coordinated publishing campaign that to promote it, but then rejected by a lot of writers of Mexican descent has kind of like revealed this this process by which certain stories get valued and certain stories don't. Have you experienced any of that? And how do you fight back against it? Well,
3: I think, you know, I, I'm a writer, right? So my, my primary focus is on literature and writing, which means nothing in Los Angeles. No one cares about literature and writing in Los Angeles, except writers. But, you know, there, at least, I think we we are seeing movement on the question of narrative scarcity versus narrative plenitude. Obviously, when, when I was growing up or when, uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, To even see a book by an Asian American was so rare. When I came across Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club at a Berkeley bookstore in 1989, I was like, oh my God, there's actually a book by an Asian person. And I read it in like two nights and I was thrilled about that. But you would only see a book by an Asian American writer literally like once every year. And so it was always an occasion to see it. Now you see a book by an Asian American writer almost every week, at least every month. And we have achieved something close to narrative plenitude there in the ranks of Asian American literature where there's so many of us. And I think the reason for this is twofold. One is that the whole stereotype of the Asian American model minority has had an unintended consequence, which is that we're not just a model minority in engineering or science, but we're starting to make our presence felt in the humanities too. You know, we, we've done well in college or a good segment of Asian Americans has done well in college and uh, they have become writers. There, there is a model minority track in writing. You mm-hmm. go, you get your BA and then you go get your MFA and you know how to work the system within the industry of publishing. So Asian-American writers, some of them have done that. The reason why we've been able to do that is because it's a low-cost enterprise for the writer. All you have to do to write a book is you need one person willing to sacrifice her or his life for the book. That's it. Right. And sanity
1: and, and time. Sanity. And right, it, yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. But the very little money. The money is put forward by the publishing industry. So that's where the barrier is when we see problems like American Dirt. They'd be perfectly happy to publish the Asian-American version of American Dirt if it came along. And they try to, right? They just haven't been able to find the right one yet. So I have no illusions about that part of the industry, but at the level of the, produ- of the writers, the producers, do- we have the opportunities to do it. In film, the problem is, of course, that it costs so much more money to make a film than to write a book. So narrative plenitude is more easily achieved the less expensive it is. Eventually, though, we all run up against the problem of who controls the industry, whether it's the industry of publishing or the industry of Hollywood or whatever industry you want to talk about. So that's why even though there is a meme or whatever you call it that says representation matters, right, and that we should all be telling our own stories and everything, which is absolutely true, having more representations doesn't solve the problem. What solves the problem is having more power. Okay, so this is what our American situation is about. We need power. We every, we need access to the means of production and the means of representation. We basically need a social revolution. This is what Asia, being Asian American has always meant from its very inception in the 1960s and pre-Asian American movement. That was always the issue for liberation of Asian American populations. Nothing has changed. Even though now we have many Asian Americans who are successful, uh, corporate lawyers and the type, they're not Asian American in the sense that they want a social revolution. And we're never going to achieve adequate Asian-American representation at all levels, across all ethnicities, across all classes, unless we actually have that power behind the scenes in the various industries that control this country.
1: Have you felt a responsibility to be
3: visible? Yes, I felt I've felt that responsibility because I think it's a lot easier for Asian-Americans to become successful and say, I have achieved the American dream. Give me a position on your board or, you know, do whatever, you know, give me a a slot on the Oprah book club or whatever. I don't care about that. You know, I think I'll use my position to say that's not enough. Having an Asian American bourgeoisie is not enough. Having certain kinds of stories is not enough. It's not enough for us. It's not enough for all of America. Uh, That's again, going back to the parasite idea, the the parasite critique Mm -hmm. of capitalism and class differentiation within Korea can be equally applied to Asian Americans. We got rich, bougie Asian Americans who don't give a damn about poor Americans. Asian-Americans or poor Asian immigrants, I'm not on their side. You know, I'm on the side of the poor. I'm on the side of the working class, Asian-Americans for sure, but across the spectrum. So Asian-American liberation is for us, but it can't be achieved without liberating the rest of the country, too.
2: You talk about writing about minorities as if they were the majority. That's definitely something I'm trying to do. How do
3: you do that? The pressure of this whole country is designed to make minorities think of themselves as minorities and make them talk to majorities. Uh, That's what racism is about, both explicit racism but also implicit racism. There's enormous pressure there to orient yourself as a minority towards what the majority wants, which can affect you subconsciously. So you're already in the act of uh, apologizing for yourself, translating yourself, explaining yourself, making room for the majority at whatever table or situation you happen to be in. And I, I actually sort of do that in my personal life. I'm a very nice guy. You yeah. know, I don't like, you know, make trouble in an interpersonal environment. But put me in front of an audience or, you know, have me write a story, that's done. That's done. And the breakthrough there for me was to imagine that I'm not going to write for the so-called majority. But first and foremost, I'm going to write for me. And we have, we have to imagine our audiences in concentric circles. And I think you always have to write for yourself first. What do you want? What do you believe in? Be true to yourself. That's the real authenticity.
1: How did you get to this point, though, of feeling empowered to to do that?
3: I always knew it in principle, theoretically, that that's what you're supposed to do. It's actually a lot harder to do that in practice mm-hmm. because in principle, you can do this. But then you think, well, how am I going to get published?
1: And when you're working in, within a system, whether that's publishing or journalism right. or film or right. whatever. Right. So you have to work with that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah.
3: so, so there's I mean, I think that affected me as a writer when I was writing short stories and I was learning how to be a writer. I was like, well, who's going to publish these stories? Who's going to be my agent, et cetera, et cetera. And I, so I wrote that collection of short stories. And after that was done, I was I was so fed up with that. And I thought I'd written my book that did that some of those gestures and now that book may never be published and i don't give a fuck about (laughs) what is going to happen next i'm going to write a book just for me that's Mm -hmm. a sympathizer Mm -hmm. and i think for a lot of artists and writers whatever whatever background the moment when they can say i don't give a fuck is the moment that they have become artists like a
1: free it's a free moment right again
3: because you don't worry about what the industry tells you whatever industry you're in you're writing for yourself or you're doing whatever it is for yourself And then for us, those of us who happen to be minorities, I think our next audience is our community. So that was my thinking when I wrote The Sympathizer. I had to construct it in a certain way. So it was a Vietnamese person talking to a Vietnamese person. So much minority literature or minority cultural production, you can tell it's not from minorities to minorities. It's minorities to the majority. You can always tell because there's always some kind of translation Mm -hmm. taking place. Or
1: some... Some some uh, concession
3: made right. to certain characters, yeah, right? Or setting, or whatever. Right. It is. So yeah. you can tell, right? And uh, but if you talk to your own community, you don't translate. Why would you do that? So when you know Jonathan Franzen puts a description of a sandwich in his in his novel, he says, "I ate a sandwich." Period. As a Vietnamese person, I'm expected to say, "I ate a bowl of pho, comma a delicious <laughs> beef noodle Vietnamese soup." <laughs> But when you say that, you know you're not talking to Vietnamese people. Yeah. This is so,
1: so fascinating, especially when it comes to food yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
1: in writing, whether that's fiction or nonfiction writing. like
2: yeah, we're, Newspapers
1: we're, italicize yeah. those.
2: We're debating right. this at the LA right. Times. Yeah. You know, our food section recently stopped mm-hmm. italicizing the ethnic food names. And and for me, like when I wrote, write about them, I don't do the comma parenthetical. Italics don't upset me anymore, you know, but I don't want to have to explain things because I, I want to write to that audience. And that can be like really difficult to do, I think.
1: It can lead to some very spirited arguments in a newsroom.
2: <laughs> yeah, it definitely has, you know, and it, it's all a question of audience, right? And and here in here in Los Angeles, we can like at least argue for for uh, a diverse, diverse audience. Um,
3: I, I think the proper position for me is, is to say, look, the majority their role in in reading our work or listening to our work or watching our work is to be the eavesdroppers. Just as we, as a minority population, have always been forced to eavesdrop on the majority culture. You know, like I grew up watching white people on screen all the time, read white canon and all that. I don't have a problem with that. But those are beautiful works. Those are powerful, entertaining works and so on. But I was the eavesdropper. I was the outsider who was not there in those books and works. And there's no problem with that. But the reverse needs to be true as well. White people, for example, cannot expect to see themselves in our works as if our works were written to them or made for them. You know, They have to be on the outside listening in, which means they may hear some uncomfortable truths about them when we talk about them.
2: Another thing about being an artist, right, is you kind of grow up thinking that you're supposed to know certain references. <laughs> There's so many things I would just go home and quietly Google so I'd know what this is about.
3: For me, for example, now that I have children, I finally get a lot of references and kids stuff that I never knew before, like children's nursery rhymes and things that you're all all Americans are supposed to know. I never grew up with that kind of stuff.
2: It's kind of like you're, you you want you're an Asian American, you're an outsider. You want to be an artist. You want to be a part of the literary elite. Like when I was first learning how to do prestige newspaper writing found myself just reading a lot of white guys and just being like, I'm trying to sound like an old white man, you know, and there was this process where I had to like, actually, like, I want to sound like what I want to sound like. And so I started reading, you know, translated literature and stuff like that and tried to read like books like yours, you know, to try to see what an Asian American voice sounds like. And so that's my question, I think, is like, what does an Asian American voice sound like? Do you do you think there is such a thing?
3: I think it's more accurate to say that there are Asian-American voices in the plural, right? Mm. Because one of the things that we, we want to get away from is the singular voice. Mm-hmm. This it's, it's just too tempting. So, for example, uh, when The Sympathizer came out, it had a great review in The New York Times on the front cover. But the third, second or third line said, Viet is the voice for the voiceless. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not true, right? Because we want to – that's very tempting for a writer to say, okay, I'm the voice for the voiceless. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to represent. And I'm going to get all the, all the credit are doing that. And, and nothing will change. You, you know, you're still going to speak for the voices and the voiceless are going to remain voiceless. And again, you know, my ambition as a writer, but also as someone who's concerned about this country and, and our communities is to say, we got to transform the conditions of this country so that there are no voiceless people. That's the real project, not to get more voices for the voices out there and give them Pulitzers and Oscars and all that kind of thing. That's good for the individual, not good for the community necessarily. So Asian American voices, there are so many, so it's hard to define what that is. But I think how I know that something is a, is a genuine Asian American voice is when there's no translation, when there's no catering. And that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with that voice, but at least I know that voice is being authentic to what the creator believes in. And that it is aimed towards us, rather towards other people. And then after that, we can argue with each other. Mm. So this just because there's Asian American voices doesn't mean we all have to listen to each other or to agree with each other. But again, we have a plurality of these voices that can contest. And maybe, some, maybe out of that, we'll get some kind of consensus or some strong viewpoints. But the fight is part of the pleasure that we, that, we, that we should be welcoming.
1: Right. So as we wrap up with you, and thank you for your time, we are recording in a college campus, which is wild to me. I feel ancient walking around here. (laughs) I feel like the Steve Buscemi meme. (laughs) I'm like, hi, kids. kids. Hello, fellow kids. As we wrap up with you, what gives you hope? You know, like we have milestones in the last few years, whether it's Crazy Rich Asians, as we talked about, which you haven't seen yet, but that's okay. Um, Culturally, it it was a, a force. We have Parasite, which won four historic Oscars earlier this year. We have Andrew Yang, what are some examples of things in your daily life that give you hope or optimism?
3: Well, you've mentioned being here on the college campus of the University of Southern California, where I teach, and you've mentioned feeling old. Well, <laughs> that's every day for me. You know, I get older, the students say younger. Uh, They say the same age, 18 to 22 years old. And that gives me hope, actually. Number one, it makes me feel old. Like, I'm going to die. Okay. (laughs) But that's normal. That's life. That's a cycle of life. Okay. And what gives me hope is that there's always a new generation. And this new generation, 10, 20, 30 years from now, is going to do whatever the people who made Parasite are doing. Those people were 20 years old at one point. They had their vision. Or the people who did Crazy Mm -hmm. Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. We were all 20 years old at some point. And so was I. And when I was 20 years old on the Berkeley campus, I was getting arrested for what I believed in, you know, doing stupid, crazy stuff that I would freak out if my own children did. But that's exactly what needs to happen. And so what happened to me was that I became a professor and all that passion got beaten out of me. All right. <laughs> so, but I've spent the last 10 or 15 years trying to get back to how I felt when I was 20. Not that I want to be 20, but I I, I want to feel that passion, that sincerity, that idealism, and then, you know, temper it with whatever kind of wisdom and experience and talent that I have. But I think that's so crucial. That gives me hope because these new generations as they come up will change the world, but they're also going to do it their own way. So I don't want the next generation, for example, of Vietnamese American writers to have to write about the Vietnam War. I mean, that's my obsession. That's that's because I was traumatized by it. My family was. That's not what's happening for people who were born in the year 2000 in the United States. So they'll do something different and whatever they do may not even be Vietnamese, but it's still going to be made by Vietnamese Americans and therefore that's going to be important to me and to us and to the Asian American community and to this country and to and to Vietnam. And so I think we uh you know obviously obviously should endorse and support all the wonderful interventions that are being made today and then welcome the changes that will take place by new generation that may not see the same, see the world the same way that, that we do.
2: Yeah, I think about all the kids growing up now, like, when I grew up, like, and I saw, you know, an Asian person on TV, I'd Google it for hours and, you know, try to find it, you know, and that's how I listened. like, Margaret Cho's comedy, you know, but now, like, kids are growing up with, like, all these different things that they can watch, you know, they don't have to like all of them, you know, but they, there's so many different versions of themselves being represented, and then they will become many different versions of themselves.
3: And I think that I, I, I was that person so long ago, and I wrote, for example, The Sympathizer, knowing that people of the earlier generation would probably hate this book because it's written from the perspective of a communist spy, and they want nothing to do with communists, so they would want nothing to do with my voice, and that's okay. I waited 20 years to have the chance to speak. Uh, that's what you do when you're Vietnamese. You wait until you have the chance to speak, and so, the, again, the new generation will have their own voice. You asked about, Frank, Asian-American voices. What are they? Well, we don't know until they start speaking and they start to claim whatever it is that they believe in. And then we, as the older generation, just got to step aside just and carry let them speak. me into the woods, yeah. you
2: know, <laughs> find a soft spot. I'll just, yeah.
1: But that's a beautiful way to approach it all with grace and I think to make space. Until they criticize me, then, that's, then it's all over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our time together is unfortunately coming to a close. But first, it's that time of the show we've come to call Bad Asian Confessions, which is when we share a time when, for whatever reason, we felt that we were not Asian enough. So please share... Anything, any of yours. So many
3: things to confess to. But first of all, my (laughs) wife does not take off her shoes in the house. That's a little source of of tension whenever I see that, you know. Um, But uh, my, my, okay, so my, my French is better than my Vietnamese, for example. I'm still enrolled in French classes, and partly it's because. You know, my son, I've, he's enrolled in a French school. I, I never stopped being a refugee. So I'm thinking, what if I have to get out of this country? Where's the best <laughs> place I'm going to go? I can't go back to Vietnam because they will you know, throw me in prison there, possibly. So uh, ironically, France, as our former colonizer, is still a better option than going back to Vietnam. And I've taken my French classes much more seriously than I ever took my Vietnamese classes. And then like, maybe the last, I have many things I could confess to, but I still haven't seen Crazy Rich Asians
1: Whoa, <laughs> no. but, how did you avoid that? I have
3: read the book. Oh, okay, okay. Read that I yeah. But, uh, you know, I whenever things like Parasite or Crazy Rich Asians happen or The Farewell, and, and, mm-hmm. and it goes way mm-hmm. back in time, you know, back to the Wayne Wang movies, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, Joy Luck Club. Joy Luck Club and mm-hmm. so on. There's always a big hubbub. Oh, my God, we've got Asian representations. We all got to go out and support it immediately in the movie theater. And uh, there's a sense of obligation for that to me and also the, the sinking sense of dread. Like, what if it's not very good? Oh, what yeah. if it's, uh, uh, yes. what Absolutely. If it's uh, well-intentioned and so on? You're, you're afraid. You're kind of afraid. Or what or if, afraid. if
2: it's too good and I don't want to feel that way? Yeah. You know, like What if it's like the farewell and it makes you
3: feel like too many things? You right. know? Yeah, so th- it's like a lose-lose situation because <laughs> the hype about the farewell was so mm-hmm. great. I mean, I did see the farewell eventually, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. in the movie theater, oh. but at home. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Crazy Rich Asians, from everything that I can tell, I may not enjoy it if I ever actually see it outside of the eye candy aspects of it. So Crazy Rich Asians has too much of a burden on it. It's it's just a romantic comedy. It should be just like every other romantic comedy. Our expectations should be level with that. And people who don't like romantic comedies shouldn't feel obligated to go see a romantic comedy.
1: Hey there, listener. Do you have a bad Asian confession that you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213 986 5652. That is 213 986 5652. Maybe we'll play yours on the show.
2: And that's it for the third episode of Asian Enough. Thanks to Viet for joining us, and thanks to you for listening.
1: Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Shang. Our senior producers are Rena Palta and Lina Anwar. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. And our original music was composed by Andrew Ethan.
2: Come back next Tuesday. We'll be joined by the comedian Margaret Cho.
4: I feel like, oh, I actually went from very current to very old school Asian, which is great. <laughs> you know, kind of an elder thing of like Empress Dowager vibe. <laughs> like if I have some turtle soup brewing on the side, like it's that kind of... Like, I'm always in kind of a throne.
2: If you like Asian enough, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, Camila Victoriano, and Clint Schaaf.
1: And remember, you don't have to like every single movie or book that an Asian American makes. It is fine. You are safe
3: here. (laughs) Come on, what's wrong with you? I did this for you. (laughs)